one of the things that jumped out at my wife and me many years ago in 2013 when we visited in town was that it was a church ordered around the liturgy. Now, there was a time when saying something like that, liturgy, would run people off, uh, especially the younger crowd, those of us who were in the younger crowd some time ago. Thanks to the influence of American revivalism and the rise of neo-evangelicalism, um, we have, in the last 50 years or so, largely assumed that authentic discipleship is to be acquainted with spontaneity. If the prayer isn't extemporaneous, or the preaching isn't pages of bullet points that's then delivered by the Spirit, or the singing and order of worship isn't marked by a split-second decision to go another direction, like repeating the same refrain incessantly, I'll stop, okay. Whatever isn't spontaneous and creative that pops into someone's head, then we sort of assume it's not truly from the heart, and if it's not truly from the heart, it's not from Jesus, because Jesus is all about the heart. So goes the reasoning, anyway. Now, I won't take the time to articulate all my objections to this line of thought. Suffice it to say that we tend to overestimate the value of things that pop into our heads. And a lot of it probably shouldn't come out of our mouths. Now, these days, however, Liturgy, the liturgy, has increased in popularity, at least to a certain extent. People have their limits, for sure. They don't want to get too carried away with all the smells and bells. But there are some things that they're beginning to adopt more and more, such as things like saying, thanks be to God, after the reading of the, ser uh, of the sermon text. It gives them a sense, it gives us a sense, that we are connected to something much greater than ourselves. We're all reaching for an identification with a God who's all in with us and for us, and a community as well, a community who can understand our sins, our failures, our pain, our victimization in the modern world, and who will love us and stand by us unreservedly through all of that. That's what we all want. Now, I'll admit, this is indeed part of the work of the liturgy. It shouts at us each week that God invites us to hear Him and to feed on Him. It reminds us that He forgives the worst of sinners, it tells us that what we do with our bodies matters for our souls, both in this life and the next. And the liturgy teaches us that as we commune, we are being a community together. The sacrament isn't a solo, isolated, autonomous meal. It's a community of disciples uniting with each other to feed on the Lord which has as its end eternal unity. Now, that's profound. It's deep. It's countercultural. 
Young people, you want to swim against the tide? You want to march to the beat of a different drum? Jump into the liturgy. This is where you find it. And the liturgy does even more than that. It draws us into real time. Time as it's meant to be. See, when we come to the liturgy, we don't escape the world, nor do we remain in the normal movements of our earthly fallen time. Instead, the liturgy of the Word and Sacrament transfigures us by the power of Christ. It transfigures us and our time to be the time of God, of heaven itself. God's very presence here in these ordinary elements, words on a page, bread, wine. These ordinary elements made extraordinary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And taking in word and sacrament is our transfiguring moment away from the ordinary movement of the world which is toward power and self and self-aggrandizement, to become something different, to be transfigured, transformed into the blessed people of God. It's powerful. We're entering into the presence of God to transfigure us. Now, I'll admit, that's a strange and very counterintuitive message, isn't it? Can you imagine telling your neighbors that? Please try. I'd love to see it on video. Just get their response. Hey, come to my church. Listen to us read and discuss an ancient book. And then get this. You'll get the chance to feed on the body and blood of Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Good luck with that conversation. It's so counterintuitive. I wonder if we, those of us here, can miss that the reorienting nature of all of this. I wonder if we might, from time to time, enter this room, endure 60 or so minutes, and leave with our default settings reset to those just like everyone around us. Do you think that's possible? It would be easy to do. But the liturgy is designed to force us to look at the world differently. That the real world is not out there and we come in here to escape it, but the real world is in here. That this is the way life is. That we interact with God like that and with each other differently. And then we take all of that out into that world that isn't living fully real. Pardon me. Let me see if I can get at this through a contemporary situation that we're in. This past Tuesday was All Saints Day. Um, as a church, oriented around the liturgy like we are, our calendars look different, right? November 1st is the day when we acknowledge and we celebrate the Catholicity or the universality of the Church of Jesus. How it spans space and time, visible and invisible. And this is something that is quickly forgotten in the church, in the modern 
church. We establish churches as autonomous, self-directing, sort of independent, cut off from the rest of the church. But All Saints Day pushes us in a different direction. There are a number of great things about that. But let's think about All Saints Day, November the 1st, and the day that comes exactly seven days later, which is seven days later after All Saints Day, November 1st, November 8th, okay. I lost all of you somewhere along the line. What's Tuesday, people? Oh, oh right. Election Day. Oh, that. Oh, that. See, you don't have this problem. You don't have a problem with yeah. Okay. Anyway. Election Day. Election Day is the day we trick ourselves into believing that we're in control of our own destinies and that the world does truly hinge on the existence of something called democracy. Voting is our country's way of convincing us that our power is limitless that with the right people in the right offices, the country and the people in it will be set right. Election Day is when we choose our own saviors. And we give them the mandate that inevitably involves making us safer, more comfortable, and free to act on our spontaneous impulses, whatever those happen to be. We feel strongly about this. Don't we? The government doesn't exist to primarily tell us no, but rather to release us to live our lives according to our wishes. This is what we've been taught, and this is what we see as the pursuit of happiness. This is the path of joy and peace, not simply for our country, but for any country at any place in any age. If the people get what they want in the leaders and the laws that they want, then happiness ensues. Now, we've so oriented our lives around this that even for Christians, Election Day tends to hold a far greater power and prominence on us than something like All Saints Day. I'll venture a guess that many Christians, like I have been for many years, are either entirely ignorant of All Saints Day or only vaguely aware of it because of its proximity to Halloween. But it has power and relevance for us. Because one of the benefits of this day is that it teaches us that the church is alive. even if her saints are no longer here. The grave doesn't have a hold on the church, and when we commune with Christ and His body, it's not simply the body we see sitting with us in this room with whom we're communing, but rather with Paul and Jacob and Priscilla and Sarah and Moses. The church is alive, fully, real-time, the real world, seen and unseen, right here. Now, this is what it means to be blessed. Blessing is not the ability to choose one's leaders, 
or grasp as much power as possible, or simply to be spontaneous. Blessing is the reality that when we arrive at the end of all things, it turns out not to be the end at all, but rather the fulfillment of everything we wanted life to be, and even more, much more, in fact. Isn't it remarkable how death, for all of its darkness and sadness, is the pathway we must walk in order to grasp full blessing? Without death, we wouldn't know eternal joy. Now that's the good news of Jesus, and that is also a tough pill to swallow. While the world is focused on election day out there and getting the lives we think we deserve, the followers of Jesus are in here looking at life through the lens of death and poverty and victimization. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated, the ones who are mocked and reviled. Blessed are those whose reputations are ruined, who are called dangerous and a menace to society. Blessed are those who are excluded from the public square because they believe something foolish like the existence of a God and that this God arrived on earth in the form of a man of all things. Blessing, blessing, blessing. I mean, it sounds so weird we think this can't be real in here. What's out there has to be real. And that's true for the person living outside of liturgical time, within the calendar dominated by Halloween and Election Day. All of this stuff that I just said is pure idiocy. Silliness. But for the one who is firmly entrenched within God's kingdom, who walks according to liturgical time, there are the stories of Jeremiah and the apostles and the early Christians and many, many more of those saints who were victims, marginalized, trampled underfoot. And Jesus says, like them, we are blessed. When we walk with them, when our lives are bound to theirs, that is fullness of blessing. And then he says, you should be over the moon and thrilled beyond words and dancing and rejoicing. Throw a party, giddy when laws get passed that push you further out to the margins of society. When all of that darkness piles on and it seems like you're getting a raw deal, that's when you bring out the party hats, Jesus says. Victims, suffering, loss, hunger, poverty, oppression, death. Look out, you are on the path to blessing. Now either he's right or he is crazy. Now we might think as we listen to these strange words from Jesus that they aren't very practical in the real world. Of all the instructions and the wisdom Jesus could have given us, 
This is the stuff that we get. Think about our everyday preoccupations in life and then line it up against what Jesus taught. What do we concern ourselves with? Career path, choosing a university, saving for retirement, the test we have on Friday, marriage, raising kids, local politics, marriage, sexual mores, inflation, election day. And Jesus says next to nothing about all of that. Maybe he's just a little un- impractical, doesn't really understand what's needed for life. We'd be wrong about that. Did you notice what came right after Luke's rendering of the Beatitudes? Jesus applies with the sharpest of blades that cuts straight to our core. Three words. Love your enemies. Now, you're lucky I dabble a bit in Greek. I know enough to read the commentaries. So you don't, you don't have to suffer with pastors who can't tell you what's really being said in the text, okay? I'm going to give you some secret knowledge here uh, to help us escape that word love. It's typically translated love. What it really means in the Greek is to tolerate as long as you possibly can. Manage until your own personal breaking point. That's another good way of saying it. Be nice unless they're toxic people who happen to bring you down. That's really what that word means. Okay, maybe not. But certainly, some lesser form of love. Afraid not. Agape. Agape, if I want to be snooty about it. The same love God has for us. The same love that sent him to the cross. The same love that promises us an eternal destiny. The same love we are commanded to have for him to will the good for others. I hate that phrase. I hate that definition. You know why? Because it puts a requirement not simply on my mind or even my heart, but on my actions. When I will something, I'm going to do something about it. If I am to experience the life of blessing from God, if I am to experience His life, His time, His heaven, like the liturgy is trying to teach me, if I am to be able to rejoice when suffering comes, then I must take a different path. And that different path is practically in action by my will, loving my enemies. It's not something we do merely out of obligation when those enemies happen to jump into our lives and cause us grief. We don't leave our normal path of comfort and occasionally love our enemies. Rather, loving our enemies and rejoicing in our suffering is the pathway to blessing. It's the pathway we live on. 
This is what it means in a very practical way to have the life of God in us. This is liturgical time. This is the way of the saints. This is the distinguishing mark of the people of God, whether you're on the political right or the political left or somewhere in between. Election day is not the day to rejoice in your enemy's demise, but rather it's a day to rejoice in our own demise and to will the good of our enemy. I don't know any way out of that. In a moment, we're going to come to the table and partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. It's His Supper, not simply because He instituted it, but because He is the meal. Victim of a Roman cross. Nothing you and I have experienced. Punished by his own people. Suffered and died thanks to the wicked powers of this world. They just always seem to have an advantage on God, at least from our perspective. Poor Jesus. Poor, poor Jesus. They slandered you, Jesus. They spat on you. They nailed you to a tree. And Jesus says, No, don't you come to my table in tears. Rejoice. Dance down the aisle to eat my broken body and drink my poured out blood. I gave my life for you. All of you, for all my enemies. And now it's time for you to taste heaven. That's our God. That's our God. Who embraced the impracticality of loving his enemies and choosing death as the way to bless it. What shall we do as we follow him? Thanks be to God.